You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, we've been talking about uh, this case in North Carolina, specifically Durham, North Carolina. And I don't know about you, but when I hear Durham, the first thing I think of is Bull Durham. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I'm, you know, familiar with the movie and you know, seen that years ago. Um, So I started digging into seeing where does Bull Durham come from. So Bull Durham comes from a tobacco company that sold tobacco. We're like the first tobacco company to make Durham like a place to be, which then led to more factories and then universities and kind of made it to the place it is now. And the Durham part of Bull Durham kind of makes sense. But what about the bull? Where did they get bull uh, to add into Durham? Well, the guys that kind of started it, they were really big fans of Coleman mustard, which comes from England, and they kind of got things mixed up a little bit, and they thought that it came from Durham, England, which actually, I guess, didn't, but there's another Durham mustard that does come from Durham, so I don't know, things are a little confusing, but Coleman mustard has a picture of a bull on the jar, and they kind of appropriated that, put it on the label for the Bull Durham tobacco, and it's been a thing ever since. So that is my little uh, factoid about uh, about Durham, North Carolina. You know, I didn't know that. When I was there, they showed me, I think it was Bull Durham Stadium. I think they're, they have a... They're the Durham Bulls. Yeah, the, yeah. Durham, oh, yeah, the okay. minor league uh, baseball team, which is kind of the basis for the the movie. Yeah. This is not quite the same name, but they that's kind of what the inspiration was for the movie. But then that's all based off of the tobacco company, which came from British mustard. Now that that's really cool. I I didn't know that uh, all that background, but it, it, when I was there uh, for that uh, for that Daubert hearing, the hotel I stayed at, which is right by the courthouse, is right next yeah. to the Durham Bowl Stadium, and out my window, I could see the, the field lit up at night, and it was packed. I mean, it was packed with people. They they like their minor league baseball there. I guess so. Nice. And their mustard. And their mustard. <laughs> All right. So we've got to do a quick mention here for our sponsors again. Uh, if you like books, you can go to audibletrial.com slash double loop to get a free month of uh, Audible, which includes a free audiobook. And uh, you can really be just about anything you want. Uh, almost any book you can imagine is available on Audible uh, for you to listen to uh, while you're doing your work or while you're on your commute to or from work or to or from those crime scenes. And also CA Wine Club for on the weekends. We need to relax from going out to work or to all those crime scenes. <laughs> you can have that delivered to your door. Whether you want the subscription or order specific bottles of wine, when you check out, put in the promo code Double Loop for fifteen percent off. I'd also like to remind our listeners that we are on uh, Twitter and that they should definitely subscribe. And you can find us on Twitter at Double Loop Pod. That's Double Loop Pod at Double Loop Pod. And we are, if not near daily, tweeting out various uh, cases and information and updates and forensic information and links to forensic cases and decisions and such that people will be very interested in. Please follow us on Twitter at Double Loop Pod. 
and sometimes just funny stuff or interesting stuff or stuff that amuses at least one of us. Very true. I am very, very happy to introduce our guest today. I'm very pleased uh, that we have a guest join us, Bart Epstein. Hi, Bart. How are you? Just fine, Glenn. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, it, I, I wanted to start off by telling the listeners a little bit of a story about how we met. I've known Bart now for... Well, and you may not even remember the first time that we met, so I'll, I'll, you, you may not remember all of this, but when I first moved to Minnesota in 1995 from Detroit, I, I moved here because I was dating this girl, and her parents, the Niemers, Bruce and Bobby Niemer, you and your wife Sandy played doubles tennis, you were playing a lot of tennis at the time, and you guys played tennis with them, I think you knew them through your temple and, and, met, right. them, and met them that way. And so they <laughs> one of the things I love about the, the Jewish community and Italians and this, the Greeks and this is that you guys are very supportive of your community and people and sharing and you know they did the hey my daughter's dating this guy and you're the direct you know assistant lab director of this crime lab would you be willing to introduce him you know around the lab and you know this thing and you being very gracious really sure just tell him to give me a call and i'll give him a tour of the lab and we'll you know we'll see and and you, you know, they set it all up, and I gave you a call, and you said, "Yep, come on down." You gave me a tour of the BCA, the State Crime Lab in Minnesota. You were assistant lab director at the time, and uh, and then you told me about internship opportunities, which the internship is the <laughs> Epstein Rhodes Internship Program, mm-hmm. which is named after you because you've been a big supporter of interns in forensic science for for some time. Correct. Yeah. So I came down and uh, he told me about the internship, and then I applied for the internship. And it, it was you had a couple of different internships going on, but one of the ones you showed me was a DNA one. At the time, they were doing RFLP DNA, and we're just moving into the PCR DQ alpha DNA typing around then. And I didn't know anything about DNA, but I still applied for the internship. I, I didn't get it, and the thing that I remember almost as if it was yesterday was getting that phone call from you, very kindly saying, well, I'm sorry that you didn't get this internship, and sitting on the other end of the phone being stunned, thinking, wow, that's how competitive this field is, that they won't even let me work for them for free. (laughs) And that was was the 90s, and (laughs) that's how competitive it was back then. But that was my first time, actually. You were very gracious to to help, you know, uh, introduce me. And I think I applied to three, four, five other jobs in that in the next five, six years. Kept applying, went back to school, got a master's degree. And by the time I finally got into the lab, you had just retired in 98 or 99? Yeah, 1998. Right. Okay. Yeah, because I think I got the offer in 99 to, to join the lab. Right. Well, that's interesting. I... I can't say I, I remember it quite as, <laughs> as um, vividly as you do, but um, that's a nice story. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah, the internship program it was something I felt very strongly about and continue to, and it would suggest that most active crime laboratories should entertain internships. It's hard for many of them because it appears to take away time from casework, that analysts need to spend with interns, but it's it makes it a teaching laboratory as well. Absolutely, and and 
so many of our interns would end up getting hired. I mean, it really was beneficial to them because it's it's a, a training ground, a proving ground. It's a test run. You know, it's like taking that that uh, car out for a test drive and seeing, kicking some tires and seeing exactly how, how this person would fit into our system. Right. Yeah. And and so, you, uh, how about telling the listeners a little bit about your background? Um, you know, how you got involved in forensics, how you came to Minnesota, and and the fact that you rose up through the ranks to become an assistant lab director. Yeah, I, uh, I was born and raised out in uh, California. Um, went to Berkeley in the '60s and uh, studied under Dr. Paul Kirk at the University of California at Berkeley. It was the only university at that time that had a degree program in uh, forensics. It was actually uh, got my bachelor's of science degree in uh, criminalistics. That was in 1965. There was a position open here in Minnesota. I applied for it, and the person that was ahead of the laboratory, the director was named Will Can Fong, and he was a director that also graduated from Berkeley, and he wanted another Berkeley graduate. So I applied. I actually just sent my transcript. I was hired over the phone (laughs) (laughs) without uh, actually being here in person. They actually held the position for six months because I had to go into the Coast Guard. I was in the Coast Guard Reserve, um, and then I came out to Minnesota in 1966, and there was five, I was the fifth person in the laboratory. So it was five of us at that time. I'm um, what um, you would call an old school and new school. I'm a generalist. I worked all sorts of cases the first year from marijuana to some toxicology to trace evidence, rapes and and some blood at that time all we could do was abo blood grouping but in the that was in the 60s i was a bench scientist for many years and then became supervisor of the serology micro area and then eventually assistant director of the lab and when i left the laboratory in uh, 98 after 32 years the lab had about a hundred um, and became way more specialized, as you well know. Yeah, yeah, and, and you you mentioned you know Dr. Paul Kirk. My intention and hope is that in a future episode we'll we'll dig into the history of Paul Kirk, his contributions to the field, and some of the cases that he was involved in. That even later you got involved in, like the Sam Shepard case, the case that supposedly the the TV show The Fugitive is based on. You know the chasing the one armed man, and it's a fascinating case that we'll we'll definitely try to cover in another episode. No, that would be that would be. Uh, interesting to do for sure and and i think listeners would benefit from hearing about the very philosophy you're talking about this generalist philosophy that we're we've been moving away from for some time but there is now this movement of maybe getting back to that because we're losing the roots of forensic science a little bit in this criminalist approach yes i i mean it's it's you're exactly right it's something that uh the super specialization um makes people more technicians than than forensic scientists, in my opinion. And so we can discuss that in a lot of detail, uh, that's for sure. One thing I wanted to add is, you know, during this time that I was at the laboratory, and even now I, I understand, 
uh, we were allowed to do private casework mm -hmm. in the laboratory if we used our own time and there was no conflict of interest. Sure. And so that's um, how some of these cases we got involved in. Yeah. And, and while the BCA, the, the, the state lab you know, here in Minnesota, they still do allow that. There are some restrictions. So many laboratories around the country don't allow that. And I, I know it, you and I have talked about this some time. My experience working cases from a defense perspective made me a better forensic scientist. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, sometimes it's this white hat and black hat theories um, uh, start to prevail that you're, you're a state crime laboratory or a city laboratory. You should be working for the prosecution all the time. Right. When, you, when you work for the defense, you really um, understand how both sides um, view things. And it was something I preach forever that should come through is that science is neutral and it doesn't matter who you're working for that what you actually find you should be an advocate for your findings not for the side that's hired you i couldn't agree more and the and again the it, it shouldn't matter who's asking the question the answer should be the same what i've observed over the years is yes but defense will ask different questions than the prosecution is asking. And that was the subtlety that I needed to learn. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a great learning experience. Yep. Well, and uh, that actually leads us to what we're going to be talking about today is exactly <laughs> exactly this kind of uh, private case that you, you got involved in. And um, this is one of many episodes in this little series that we've been doing on North Carolina versus Peterson. Uh, the Michael Peterson case, which has been made now somewhat famous by the Netflix series, The Staircase. And so previous episodes, we've gone over the, the Netflix episodes. We've dissected them a little bit. We've talked about some of our own theories, our own ideas, our own observations. But this is all culminating with actually talking to an expert who worked the case, who had access to the original evidence, wrote reports, had conclusions, and was prepared to testify in that case. And Bart, you know, you, you had that opportunity. So I, I think listeners will be very excited to hear about the real facts from the perspective of the forensic scientist and the evidence, not what Netflix or the documentarians chose to show in the series. So let's start off with how did you get involved in the case? And it's not just you, right? And you've got a partner that you work with. Yes, uh, Terry Labor uh, also was working at the BCA, and I um, were and still are um, partners in evaluating private casework. And so the way we worked is if we received evidence, both of us would examine the evidence individually and write our observations and a draft report. And then we would get together and consult to, to uh, make sure we were independently seeing things similarly. And if we didn't, then we would discuss them, either uh, modify what we saw, throw it out, do some other examinations until we both would agree. It's like uh, um, both peer reviewing each other. I'm, so, I'm, in, I'm, I'm just to interrupt for one second, when I first heard that <clears throat> approach, which you know, I, I had not been taught that approach. And when I was doing my own private casework, I stopped 
and immediately switched to that model. And that's the model I use today and love that model. I mean, it, 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 I, I can't imagine doing it any other way now. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's very helpful. You have to have a, a, a person that is willing to tell you to your face that you're off base. <laughs> you're full or, of it. Or full of it. Uh, because <laughs> I've had that. Uh, Terry Labor on a number of occasions said, are you friggin' <laughs> saying that? And, uh, you know, uh, that that can't be that way. Or why do you say that? And, and forces you to make sure that what you are willing to testify to mm-hmm. is something that will stand up to scientific rigor. And it, I th- it's worked very well. Um, and I think many other, or at least some other, um, private experts have, have yeah. used that model as well. Yeah, and one other thing along those lines is you guys always write a report. No matter what, you always have a report so that your conclusions and findings are memorialized, regardless <clears> if the the attorney wants the report or not. Yes, and in fact, it occurred in this case as well. Um, and I can mention that uh, when appropriate. We we wrote a report. Mm-hmm. At one point, I told the, the district attorney that we had the report. He said, that's fine, I, and I, we're going to put it in our file. He said, just hold on to that. I don't want it right now. And then about two weeks later, though, he said, please send me the report. So yeah, it's clear that you you have to, you must, uh, as a scientist, um, and a forensic scientist especially, write a written report. It, it forces you to make sure what you are willing to testify to is written down and that you, um, you follow some good scientific procedures. I received a phone call uh, from Dwayne Deaver. Um, on We've mentioned him on a previous episode. Yes. Yeah. Dwayne Deaver, I don't know if you know, but was a student of ours. I recall this. In um, 1986, he attended a workshop um, that Terry Labor and I put on. We put on an annual workshop on blood stain patterns uh, from 1983 to 2001, yearly. I took it. I remember uh, it very well. And uh, it was an intense workshop that had a mixture of um, scientists and law enforcement people, and and Dwayne Deaver was a, a past student. He even mentioned that in the in the series, he talked about that as part of his CV and his training. So he actually referenced the the workshop through maps, right? The Midwest Association of Forensic Scientists. So, in any case, he he, he gave me a phone call on March twenty second of uh, two thousand two. So this was maybe four months after the actual uh, uh, death. Uh, And he called um, because he said that the district attorney, Mr. Hardin, wanted to contact us um, because the defense, David Rudolph, had hired Henry Lee and at that time Marilyn Miller as well to evaluate material. And the district attorney wanted to know if we would be available to evaluate Dwayne Deaver's work as well as whatever Henry Lee would be finding. So that was the initial contact. I consulted with Terry Labor, and we got back to him and said we would be available. And so that's how we first got involved, um, mainly because I think the attorney 
district attorney wanted us to be available to evaluate material right. in the case. So, all right, so w- what's your process? What did you and Terry basically do at that point? Because, you know, you're, you're coming in either evaluating other people's work or you're working off of crime scene photographs. Did you potentially go to the actual scene? Uh, how, how did everything come, you know, work out for you guys to get to the evidence? Well, yeah, initially, the, we were informed that the defense was going to get the material to evaluate Henry Lee. Dwayne Deaver had already done his work. Um, and so we said, fine, let the defense do their work and then send us all the material here in Minnesota, which is what they did. They, they sent us uh, the material here in 2003. This was almost a year after we were contacted. Um, and they sent us all the material. We, we had photographs, um, over 205 crime scene photographs. We had the clothing that was involved, mainly uh, Michael Peterson's shirt, his shoes, and his pants. We had the Kathleen Peterson's sweatpants, and uh, material was all sent here for us to examine. And what happened there is that Terry Labor took all the, uh, initially, all the clothing and started his examinations. I started looking at all the photographs, and then we swapped those mm-hmm. and, and did the examinations and then conferred with each other to write a report. Okay. Now, one of the, one of the things that's come up, and I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit, is that, I mean, obviously you would have worked off of photographs that the crime scene folks took, uh, Deavers, I don't know if Deavers actually took the crime scene photos himself or maybe directed some of that. Did you find that the photographs adequately described the scene and the blood stain pattern evidence that would have been at the scene? Yes, is a general answer. Um, I had one criticism, if you will, of, of what Dwayne Deaver did some examinations that used strings, mm-hmm. a stringing technique, uh, and no photographs were taken of that. I see. And that would have been helpful, um, not not particularly for me, but I think for his testimony in court. But otherwise, the photographs were adequate to do an examination. We asked to uh, go to the crime scene uh, two different occasions, and we never were allowed to go to the scene. We weren't allowed to go because they wouldn't, basically it was still Peterson's house and they were even living in it. Would they not allow you to go in there or? Well, let me correct that. Uh, Initially, uh, when Henry Lee was going to be going to the crime scene, Mm -hmm. they asked if we should or need to go. And that was early on. I indicated no, but we would like to go later. In other words, we hadn't seen some of the other evidence, I'd, I wanted to not be there, particularly when other examiners were there as well. But then later on, when it was we were potentially going to be testifying, I said it would be very important for us to go to the scene, at least to observe these areas. It's always better to, to go to a crime scene um, sure. as opposed to just with photographs. Right. I mean, you know, the prosecution, or at least Deaver's, the lab, they they seem to have this recreation of the entire stairwell that was pretty impressive. I mean, it looked as to scale yes. and everything. I mean, it was, but I mean, obviously, even still going to the actual scene to see the stains on the wall and the positions. You've done this for forty plus years. 
mean, yes, it would. It would have been uh, advisable, and that's why I told them. I think you'd be potentially criticized for not going to the crime scene if you could possibly do it, even after that period of time. But the photographs were uh, more than adequate to, in my opinion, to reach um, valid conclusions. And and we're going to get to those conclusions in just a second. One question that I think skeptics that are going to listen to this who have watched the Netflix series and have already come to a conclusion that you know Peterson was railroaded by the justice system, they're going to stop and they're going to go, well, hold on here. Um, you know, Epstein and Labor, they actually didn't go to the scene. They worked off of photographs and images that were provided, let's say, through Deavers. He already had a track record of this. Now, although he never actually falsified evidence and he never actually uh, fabricated evidence or dry labbed, but they did show that he had this history of how he reported his evidence and was very biased and not in a neutral manner. People are going to look at this and, or listen to this and maybe go, well, can we really trust these photographs? Did he already fabricate or falsify evidence that you're just working off of? incorrect photographs or fabricated photographs. Is that even possible in a, in a situation like this? Well, I, I understand what you're, you're asking, but there's no doubt, in my opinion, that Dwayne Deaver, his past caught up with him and that he, his um, credibility uh, was shot after a number of things, this Taylor case that he was involved in. Right. And, and I think that's appropriate that he was uh, discredited for that. However, that does not mean that his um, work in this particular case is totally discredited at all. Right. And, in fact, um, the work that we did came to many of the same conclusions. And, in fact, these conclusions although they weren't presented, were agreed to by Henry Lee. And so uh, those are the things that I think need to be brought out, as well as, I mean, I did not agree with everything that Dwayne Deaver said, and I surely didn't agree with a lot of the things that Henry Lee said, and we can discuss all of those. Yeah, excellent. But, I mean, as someone who works scenes for years, it would be pretty hard to fabricate or create false evidence of crime scene stains, right? In some way, at a scene, I, to, you know. <laughs> so I, I think it would be fair that we could probably trust the information in these photographs, given the number of people and the sources of the photography, the video, and everything that we have available, right? I mean, we can put that skepticism. Yes, you to can that. put that aside. There is so much information on the photographs there at the crime scene. Perfect. Uh, the stains that are in that stairwell. Yeah and on the wall, uh, that you could not, um, you, you can't manipulate them. Right. I mean, okay. you, you can view them differently. Right. But it, it, right. It, com- it will come down to your interpretation of the evidence, but we can at least as a starting ground go, this is the information, the data from the scene, and we can trust that. Regardless if Deaver had his finger on it or not, these are photographs of the scene. That's the evidence in itself. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Good. All right, so I'm very excited to get to those conclusions. But first, we're going to actually tease it because we're going to take a quick break for a sponsor <laughs> announcement. We'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors. The Double Loop Podcast is sponsored this week by Idemia. Idemia has earned its place as a long-standing strategic partner to the most prestigious law enforcement agencies in the world. Their leading technology has combined digital and cloud experience to bring unparalleled efficiency and next-generation user experiences to their customers. 
because authorities are tasked with identifying risks and threats, solving crimes in less time than ever before, and working with limited budgets and resources, Idemia has launched a new product called Case APHIS. It is a portable latent examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. Case APHIS enables latent examiners to solve complex and difficult cases faster by searching latent prints collected at a crime scene against known prints on a case-by-case basis. It provides an alternative to examiners who typically would compare latent prints manually against a set of known persons and suspects within the case, separate from their APHIS database. This improves efficiency and reduces erroneous exclusions. Interested in solving crimes faster? Learn more about IDEMIA and Case APHIS by contacting them at info.usa at IDEMIA.com. That's I-D-E-M-I-A dot com. And we're back. And so we're going to come right to the heart of the matter. Bart, what were the conclusions or some of the most important conclusions that you and Terry Labor came to in this case? The major questions that came up in the case was this an accidental fall down the stairs uh, or is this a beating death of Kathleen Peterson? And I can jump to the end first and say that it is and was and continues to be our opinion the bloodstain patterns on the walls, the stairs, and on the clothing of Michael Peterson clearly um, were not just produced by a simple fall down the stairs. This is extremely consistent, and I don't know how much percentage you can get into these whole you know, and wording on these statements, but this is a scene that is consistent with a beating or death by a non-accidental fall. In particular... There was uh, three areas um, of impact identified above the lower stairs and by the north wall. They were out in the air. In other words, they, they were somewhere out in, in space. Over the landing. Area. Over the, yeah, over the landing. There, there's, I'm sorry if I, if I described uh, where her head was, was the bottom stair, which we call number 18, and then 17, 16, 15 going on up. Mm-hmm. So the, it starts curving up. And uh, above number 17 stair, there was at least two impacts that were identified uh, by Dwayne Deaver and by us and agreed upon by Henry Lee. And then there were at least three different impacts to the edges of the stair. I mean, I even have photographs here. You can see them, but others cannot. The edge of the stair where, um, and there was hair wipings on it where a head hit the stairs and radiated stains um, out on on those surfaces. So there's at least three different areas on the stairs, stair number 16 and 15, and three other impacts up in the air. That's at least six different impacts to the head. These are, are identified by classical fan-shaped stains that you draw lines through, um, and you can get a area of origin. Now, mm-hmm. Dwayne yeah. Dwayne Deaver was um, criticized harshly for saying there was a point of impact, and at, and they had Tom Bevel and they had 
Paulette, Paulette, Sutton. Paulette Sutton and I think even a report by Stuart James and others saying that you can't have a point of origin, which they're correct. And he, um, the, you can get it to an area, usually you're talking about an area of... Uh, grapefruit. Grapefruit or, or so. Small I mean, volleyball. Yeah, small volleyball. Some area in that, but that's clearly the area. It can't come just from a single point. You, you can't be that accurate. Right. So the, the program criticize them rightfully so uh, but those those three areas and the areas on the stairs the other so just to be clear there were impacts on the uh, stairs that could have been consistent with a fall down the stairs or her head hitting a stair and radiating blood from there but then there were also three more impacts out in space where blood originated from her basically her head being not in contact with the stair radiating from there is that what you're saying yes i mean that would be succinctly saying i mean and and the you know these wounds that were on her head if you saw the photographs they presented its netflix episode as well i mean they they are pretty drastic uh impacts and to have them simply for i don't know how you can hit three different areas on on you could, I guess, just from a fall, you, you bounce, and then, but then you're not bouncing very much. Uh, these areas uh, could be just from a fall, but they could be by forceful um, impact. There, there's an impact to, to some blood on the actual edge of the, the stairs, but, but you're correct in, in what you said. Okay. There was um, blood found, blood spatter found on the shoes of Michael Peterson that um, they were they were very small on both the left and right shoes and some showed directionality coming down some of them were a millimeter or less on both sides so some something that impacted blood came down on his shoes on his uh, shorts there was impact spatter that came up from below up onto the crotch area and actually inside one of the one of the legs of his pants. So something that impacted blood below his shoes came up as well. So he was near blood, and this is no one was refuting that this was Kathleen's blood that was caused by impact. These stains look very similar in size and shape to all the other stains that were found in the stairwell. And just to explore this, suppose that if he had just merely stepped in her blood or a pool of blood, could they have traveled up that far uh, into that crotch area? Um, Or the other possibility, if he had stomped in the pool of blood, wouldn't we, and they could have traveled up that far, wouldn't we expect to see then a lot of blood, not the little stains I can see here in the photographs on the shoes, there should be, his shoes would be covered in blood if he was stomping in blood in some way to maybe explain how they could have traveled up to the, the you know up into the shorts. Yeah, but, um, anyone who's taken or done any of this work, if you if you stomp on blood, if there's a pool of blood and you stomp on it, it's the same thing that you'll get if you stomp on a water puddle. The the, the it, it's a flat surface hitting this material. It all flies out close to the ground and goes up a large amount. At a a tangent level to the the surface that's making the contact. Yeah, actually almost parallel to it. 
And, uh, and so you, you, by stomping on blood, you don't get blood coming up into the crotch of your pants. Right. Uh, so, and there, and there'd be large stains. These are very, very small stains as you can see, but, right. uh, no, so that isn't a mechanism that would cause that. Uh, one mechanism which was proposed and testified to by uh, Dr. Lee was that this was caused by coughing of blood, mm-hmm. right? And in our opinion, this is just outright wrong. The, this, these stains uh, to be expirated blood, she would have to, her head would have to be right underneath his head uh, or her, his pants coughing blood and by the way you don't see any blood in her nose or mouth uh, they find a trace amount if you read the autopsy a little bit in the lungs but not very much there's none in her mouth uh, there's no evidence that there was any expirated blood but even if there was then it would come down and it would be all over her face mm-hmm. so we don't see any of this expirated blood as a mechanism right. of those stains or the stains that are on the wall. And, and you've been to scenes where people have expirated blood and that's what you would normally see are exactly those things that you described. Exactly. And you don't see any of that here. No. And uh, I think in the in the show, Dr. Lee you know, makes this point of, oh no, it's not from like coughing up blood like you know you see in the movies where someone gets shot and you know in the lung and then their blood comes from that wound up their esophagus and out their mouth. He's saying blood ran down the face into the mouth and then was expirated from there. But you're right, there was, there was no blood found in her mouth and there's no, no, there's no blood on her face, you know, near her mouth for, you know, from doing that. So, and what the, I guess the show didn't show was, was that evidence was actually presented to Henry Lee and he didn't even know or wasn't aware that there was no blood found in her mouth. Right. I mean, um, I mean that should have been presented. But if you see the photograph, he, he said that he thinks he saw blood in this mouth from this photograph. Uh, yeah, we're looking at a photograph right now of a scene in Kathleen Peterson. And, okay. yeah, you don't see any, any blood there. No, or in the nose as well. So, I mean, because you could expirate through the nose as well. But if she would cough this up and had to be in that position... What goes up comes down. You would have expected to see a lot on her. Yeah. Um, While we have this photograph here, one of the things that is striking too is where you're looking at the wall. You can see so much movement and an attempt to possibly clean up or moving those stains around there. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, uh, because that was a contention as well. Uh, Dwayne Deaver noted that at the scene on that north wall, which is the big wall by where her head is found at the bottom of the stairs, there's, there's a lot of smeared contact blood, a lot of heavy blooding blood there with some smears. There's a lot of small stains that are... Um, look like impact-type stains or what we would mm-hmm. call cast-off stains. And there's an area especially an area that shows a wiping up of blood. It's clearly been something wet is smeared over it. You can see that the, it's sort of a rectangular shape and some of it going down. And incredibly, Dr. Lee says this was caused by coughing and it'd be by blockage, that something blocked the stains from coming up there. Avoid you know, avoid area caused by and if you look at this photo, it's clearly not something that has straight edges. There's been some 
area of wiping up. Yes. I mean, it's been wiped with something wet. And, which and, would, and it looks like it's diluted, too. And it's diluted, right. right. So, I mean, it's a, a wet rag or like, and maybe, I mean, I'm suspecting that Michael Peterson did that. I don't know. She couldn't have done it. And no one else is saying. Although the sun was there too at the scene yes. as well, right? That by the time that the I believe the EMS arrives, the sun is the sun was there as well. Right. But someone it clearly started to wipe that up, and he testified that. Well, I don't. Know, he did. That's another thing. He I mean, Michael Peterson never testified. Right. When I've worked for defense and prosecution, I have always this is a personal view. I've always wanted to hear from the person that's accused saying I didn't do it. Uh. Okay, that's just me personally. Sure. But I, clearly, in this situation, um, it was probably from a defense attorney, and him testifying was probably uh, the right thing. I mean, I'm not. He would have had to have answer for Germany, which yeah, we lot, discussed in previous episodes. Yeah, Germany and and this whole. I don't want to get into non-scientific stuff. It's yeah, the Germany enough. thing and uh, his bisexuality and all of that uh, has, in my opinion, very little to tainted do with the case tainted and, the case yes. and. Um, I think even the judge says that later on, right? Right. But another thing to notice here, and it came up in trial, is that there's a cleaned-up area, and then there's some spatter. Yes, inside that. On top of that. Yes, later. Later. So something was cleaned up, and then there was something else that caused the spatter or cast off or something else occurred afterwards. So that's an area that there was some disagreement about. Now, whether that made it more likely that this was a, a beating that Michael Peterson was involved in, the, really the two major things were the blood stains found on his clothing inside the crotch area and his shoes um, and um, the, the number of impact sites that really were consistent with a beating, not some other mechanism. If I can just elaborate one other thing is there was... A couple of things that if we would have testified, there was a number of things uh, that we were going to discuss, and a couple of them were things that I agreed and disagreed with uh, Dwayne Deaver, and there were... Sure. Let's, yeah, let's, okay. let's cover those. There was... Uh, and, you know, actually, before you even get... Let me just mention one thing. Yes. This right here is why someone should appreciate that you weren't just hired for the prosecution to just agree with the state's case, this potential bias, and that you're getting paid a check to have an opinion. The fact that you can go in, agree in part with this, disagree with this, Henry Lee can look at some of your conclusions and vice versa. A group of experts don't always have a consensus on everything, but you you didn't just go in and rubber stamp these conclusions. I think that's an important thing to point out. Yes, I mean, I think that that's what I wanted to do what happened in this case is uh, we did our examinations and wrote reports, and we knew that um, Henry Lee was going to testify in this case. And so we were asked by Mr. Harden, what, what, what should we do here? Um, and we suggested, and he agreed, that we'd have one of us be in court while Henry Lee testified. Right. And the other person would stand by because we were sequestered, right. stand by to testify if needed. So we agreed to that, and Terry Labor went, uh, and, and he can actually be seen 
in mm -hmm. one of the episodes sitting behind counsel. If yeah, you, and there's even a reference in the Netflix episode that even Rudolph says, he, he never names you guys, but he says something about the prosecution having some other experts waiting in the wings to testify. I think that's the phrase that he uses. Right. And it's not until, in fact, the new episodes in the, the, the potential retrial where the first time you hear the prosecution mention Epstein and Labor, and you're referenced by that pros prosecution at that point. It's the only time that you guys are mentioned in the whole episode, or in all the episodes, other than these vague off-camera references. Let me also add something interesting to the fact that what you were just saying. I, I knew uh, Dave Rudolph. Yes. I, I worked for Dave Rudolph before this case for defense in a, in a, a North Carolina case. Uh, we were retained by Harden. I received a phone call from Dave Rudolph in this case. Um, about in January of 2003, he had already hired Henry Lee, and he was on the phone, and he says, you know, Bart, I know him first name, you know, I'm involved in this case um, with uh, Henry Lee here, and, there, and I said, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> and, and because I knew where, where he was going, and I didn't want him to reveal anything that he yeah, shouldn't. Sure. I said, we already been retained by Mr. Harden and to be working on the case. And all he said, he, he respected, he said, and I have it in my notes, that he was glad that I stopped him from saying anything. And um, they just said, of course, you know, keep an open mind. I said, of course I will. Yeah. And But it, it was um, flattering in a way that he was calling me, um, and I don't know I can speculate, but he'd already been working with Henry Lee, and he wanted somebody else still to look at what yeah. Henry was doing and what, right. you know, the same thing that actually Harden was asking yeah. when you look right. at this stuff. So um, I think it, and that it goes to the point that you were just saying, um, and I don't want to pontificate, but it's, it doesn't matter who right. who is going to hire. And, and like you said, I we both found things that we disagreed with and agreed with Dwayne Deaver as well as with Henry Lee. And, and while we're talking about Rudolph for one moment, I, I've mentioned this on other episodes, but I just get your opinion too. I mean, I, I love David Rudolph. He's great. He, he is so entertaining in this, and I love seeing how he thinks and works a case. And I just said in a previous episode, if I was guilty of murdering someone, that is who I would hire. Yeah, no doubt about it. I, I would agree. If I could afford him. Yeah, I, yeah. And, uh, well, you can see at the, near the end. I mean, uh, of this uh, of that episode, he. Um, I, I think we mentioned that when the money runs out, suddenly he. Uh, <laughs> a little bit, but but he but he is he is all in, and uh, yeah. the other case that I work with him. I mean, he's tenacious. He's logical. He he uh, is realistic, and he can he can see what's going to help and hurt his client he's a great I, trial lawyer too i mean well, the, the, his experience and his ability to cross-examine and pull out and he's really very good yeah i mean no, no doubt about it i mean he 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 did a tremendous job in this case and yeah. i i might even say at the end he um <laughs> yes the, which we can talk about more well, as well I, but just I, from, from what we've said in previous episodes, I mean, if you were watching, and when I first saw these first eight episodes, even though I had already seen this case through your eyes, I'd already seen these notes back in 2003 and saw what was very, very clear to me, this was not a fall down the stairs, after watching those first eight, eight episodes, even knowing this case, I still think that what he showed was reasonable doubt. 
and that he did a fantastic job of introducing reasonable doubt. The evidence just was not in his favor. Right. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, he's, uh, he's an A1 uh, yeah. attorney. I still think probably to this day he still thinks uh, his client was uh, not guilty. Uh, he, he hedged a little on the last interview, if you mm-hmm. catch that a little I, bit. I, I did. But, but I, I also admire him for taking I – mean, one of the things that you see in the last episode is when the family member is just blasting him apart and, sh- and venting on him. I don't know how he sits there with just such a straight face and not emote, not react, not get defensive, just... Let I, it go. I, I was actually very impressed with that demeanor, that yes. professionalism. Yeah, the, yeah. And, yeah, I don't think you can say too many good things uh, yeah. about about Dave Rudolph. Uh, All right. Well, anyway, we took a little side here, and now you're going to tell us about where you might have disagreed a little bit with uh, some of Deaver's conclusions. Yes. I mean, he, he had this, uh, a couple of things, a... a a cast-off stain that was up on the ceiling. Yeah, we had some photographs that weren't good, but also there was only one stain or two stains. One was going one direction, the other direction. One stain does, does, not, does not a pattern a, make. No. So I mean, right. this cast-off business just wasn't there. Um, he also identified, I think, on the stairs a pattern that looked to him like a, a pattern of this blow poke. Mm. Uh, that it, it was ambiguous at best. Did he actually say that at some point or put uh, it in a report that it is, quote-unquote, maybe consistent with something, a long, slender object like a blowpoke? I mean, does he, in other words, does he suggest the murder weapon to to follow along with prosecution? And I'm, I'm teasing something down the road that when we get to the Sam Shepard case, yes. that kind of damning suggestion can be... Yeah, I, I mean, I have in my notes here the identification of a blowpoke as making imprints on step 15 and by the body of Kathleen. And I say you can't positively identify her. It was just sure. so vague. Yeah, okay. Uh, the other is just the idea that he got hooked in, and everyone did, watching the series, that the blowpoke is, this inst- uh-huh. is the instrument. I don't know how you can tell what caused exactly those marks. I mean, right. they just hooked on to some cylindrical and the other thing is a cylindrical object acts like a, like a baseball bat but most stains just go flying out on the edges and don't go up like we see in at the scene so i don't know i think that was a big mistake by the prosecution sure. to hook into it and of course that played a big role and you know, what was the actual murder right. weapon or was it just the side of the stairs what but what caused those impacts out in space is a valid question. Well, now that's an interesting theory. Is and based on what I know from the evidence, but let's just explore that. Is it possible he grabs her by the head, the hair, and is smashing her head into the steps? Is that possible given the impact sites in space? Well, that could cause those those impacts on the stairs. By the stairs. By the stairs, but, but out in space there's got to be some other instrument or fist or something right. that caused those. So could he have grabbed her head, smashed it to get those lacerations and some of the impact sites near the stairs, but then was beating or hitting her head with a fist in uh, space? I, I get, Yeah, it could. I mean, but it could be some other instrument sure. too. I mean, I, I, that's, right. that's my point is that I don't think there was a, a, a reason to absolutely say, and everyone, sure. they just 
because it was, I think, convenient. Yeah. Of course, it played a big right. deal in the whole story that's presented by Netflix about it. If it wasn't there, then it is there, then it's found, and no, there's no blood on it, or is there blood? I mean, all that. Would we have seen, though, blood wedged into the wood into the stairs or some yeah. other things if that had been used as the blunt force object? I mean, natural stair edges. Would, there, would the stairs have looked a little different if... Actively using the stairs well, as the weapon. Well, there actually there actually was some blood really smashed up into the stairs. All right. I mean, so there's some indication that that is a strong possibility. Okay. Okay, but again, right. you know, what, what's know. that mean? Right. You know. Right. Let me, let me jump in here with a, a couple of questions. Sure. Just kind of uh, you know, hear you guys describe that the impact sites in space. You know, as Glenn's describing, you know, a, a head being pushed into the uh, stairs, and then when it's brought back, there's kind of that moment where the the head is brought back and and then stops the backward motion, like a cessation. Yeah, yeah. Could could that you know pull back and then stop before going back in for another hit? Could that have provided the impact spat, uh, uh, location in space, or does it actually have to be an impact to the head with a fist or another object? Yes, I think what we need to do is get you into a basic blood spatter. <laughs> because what, what I, you're I have describing, not done yeah, that. that was a good question. Because what 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 would happen, and there's actually evidence there. If you pull the head back and stop it quickly, the hair continues, and you get you'll get a cast off. Okay, blood will be flung onto the wall, and there's evidence of cast off on the wall. There's evidence to believe that her head, while bloody was swinging or stopped in a number of t- times to provide some cast-off staining. But it wouldn't, just the stopping would do cast-off, but it wouldn't produce these radiating stains out of impact. Got it. So then that, that's a big thing that they bring up in the documentary over and over again is that there was no cast-off pattern. So I wanted to specifically get into to that because we're talking about cast off now yes um what you're describing is that there there is a cast off pattern in that stairwell right just n- yeah right not yeah. above where the beating potentially could have taken place yeah i mean there's on that front wall there's some cast off staining and there's some actually on the, the what we call the east wall the wall Oh, yeah, I can see right there. I mean, very clearly, yes. Yeah, there's some cast-off. Yes, several different bands of cast-off. Of cast-off. And there's some on the east wall as well, some larger stains. So there's some indication. I, I believe Henry Lee testifies that he didn't see any cast-off staining. Well, he didn't. He was mistaken. <laughs> you have a difference of opinion. Yes, we have a, a, a strong difference of opinion. on, And there's some other things which I'll list in a minute that we disagreed upon as well. The only area where there was no cast off is way above towards like the ceiling um, and yes. just straight up. There's no cast off up there, but there is on the side a, wall. On the wall, right? Yes, yes. That, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, I, I was mentioning before the cast off, what people believe, you know, when you have a bloody object and you swing it over your head, the blood is flung up onto the ceiling uh, and then potentially on the back wall too. But we didn't see any of that type of cast off. Got it. Right. And, and as you pointed out just a, a little while ago, there's a stain or two up there, but that's not enough to make a pattern. And Deaver suggests that it could be a cast off stain up on that ceiling area. But in your opinion, it's simply the, the evidence doesn't support that strong of a conclusion. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. 
then uh, Dr. Lee also uh, testified for the defense, and you already kind of suggested you had some disagreements with him. What what were some of those other ones? I mean, I'd already mentioned the idea that he didn't believe these were impact stains. They were all caused by uh, expirated, coughed-up blood, and I've mentioned why I didn't believe uh, that was true, that these stains uh, just don't show that. There was nothing on her face and her throat. There's two other, and also this, he testified about this shadow effect uh, that caused this wiped area, this blank area on the north wall. Why wouldn't he call that a void? I mean, just as a standard term in blood spatter, we know that as a, a standard term. Why, why not? Why wouldn't he call that a void? I don't know. He said it was a shadow. Yeah, and it, um, that sounds, I mean, strange to me. I know. And I, I mean, I was prepared to testify and show the photographs, and just as I showed you, there's no, this was not true. There's two other major disagreements about Henry Lee's testimony. He, he, he evidently, he testified that there was 10,000 stains. And I don't know how he got that, if he actually counted those stains, that, that that's too many for a beating. What? <laughs> What, what logic did he use to get to that? I have no idea. And uh, because, number one, I don't know if he actually counted them. And number two, uh, beatings can produce thousands and thousands of stains. And whatever, right. if you look at these, um, anyone with any experience, including Henry Lee, this is not too many for a beating. I mean, there's some smearing and beating, and there's stains all over. Another thing that he said is that, to do stringing, and if you understand what that is, that's a technique to determine where these blood stains originated from. He said that there was 4,000 stains in this pattern that Dwayne Deaver was talking about, and that you would need to string all 4,000 of those. And that's simply not true either. I mean, you, you don't need to string every... Can you imagine, uh, this is the same thing for our listeners, as if you have a, a water puddle, let's say, you know, five inches in diameter, and you stomp on it, water goes out in all directions, and if you put strings on those, they'll come back to where your foot is. But you don't have to put strings on every one of them. <laughs> you, don't, you understand? The, right. So, but he, he testifies that simply stringing is not good because you'd have to string all 4,000 strings. So, I mean, just, I don't know why he would say things like that. And and I, I alluded to this in a pre, in a previous episode when we were talking about this case um, uh, that I'm not a fan of of Henry Lee or or some of the things that he's testified about, and that all started even way back before I you know was hired as a forensic scientist, uh, taking some some classes in forensic, just general classes. Going back to I'm sure you're familiar with the criminalistics book by uh, Safferstein. Yes. It, it, in the edition, at least that I was, I had when I was uh, taking that class, it references the uh, the OJ trial and uh, how Henry Lee testified to this uh, shoe print that was never photographed, and as, as a big criticism of the uh, the crime scene text there at the scene. And while there's uh, plenty to you know criticize with the crime scene text of that uh, of that scene, this shoe print that he's referring to was in the concrete like was made when the concrete was wet which obviously has nothing to do with the uh the 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 murder that occurred at the time 
So, uh, and I, I, I also believe that William Boziak, I think, wrote that little thing. So Boziak had a particular axe to grind as the foremost expert in footwear comparisons. He had something yes. to say about that opinion. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's pretty clear you guys disagreed with Henry Lee. You agreed with Deaver's main conclusions that this was not produced by a fall. Uh, so two, two big questions. Why were you never called at the original trial? You guys were waiting in the wings, but why didn't? Why did they not call you guys to do your direct testimony then? And then the follow-up question: So why not for the potential retrial and that hearing? And basically, even if we say Devers, you know, is discredited in these issues, okay, well, we had these other bona fide, world-recognized experts who had the same conclusion. Why not call them instead? Let's take the first one. Why not the original trial? Okay. The, the, at the original trial, as I indicated, we suggested to Harden that um, one of us be there during the trial. And this, this is something that listeners and experts should also consider at times when they're working for either side, is we knew and know Henry Lee, um, and he knows us. Right. And Henry... As you've indicated, is uh, can be a flamboyant, uh, very charismatic, or you know, bigger than life expert. He has his own persona uh, as well as being a forensic scientist. And having we suggest having someone there m- might keep him from overextending on certain th- things. And also, we could advise the attorney about questioning and cross examination. And we'll. And so that's what we did. Terry Labor went, took notes, and he has about 15 pages of notes. I'd contacted him. I'd prepared material and an outline of questions um, to go in and testify, stating a lot of the things that we just have gone over today. To answer your question directly, after at the end of Henry Lee's testimony, we conferred, and we made a decision not for me not to testify. And the reason was mainly that Deaver testified for seven days, Henry Lee for about three days. And I even agreed and suggested and concurred that this jury had heard enough about blood spatter. I wasn't going to add that much more. And it's, it's, that, it's that lawyer tactical decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'd go in there and say what I just said. I didn't believe... You know, Henry could say this, or and, and did you think that the evidence was so clear cut and convincing that it really didn't need another person to explain it? That it was just so obvious. Yeah, I thought. I thought yes, and I and I didn't think, and, and Terry didn't either, that Henry Lee's testimony was discrediting, but it, that it it wouldn't take away the effect of what was presented. So that that's why I didn't, and then. Along comes, and I, you know, the last I knew is uh, they found him guilty. Right. And then uh, I, I didn't know what else was going on. I wasn't contacted until um, later on I was asked to send all our material, disclosure material, to the new district attorney and uh, Dave Rudolph. And I can't answer, I mean, we were never contacted to testify in the hearings I suspect if they would have made a decision to go on for a second trial that we would have been. But 
but I don't know that for sure. I, I believe because Dwayne Deaver's background was so tainted that they would need evidence, and we could provide evidence that was um, as hurtful uh, to the defense. And so I would think we would have been contacted. Yeah, and, and that, that kind of makes sense. And in my experience, when I went out there and spoke a little bit with the current prosecutors out there, I mean, there was this sense of, uh, you know, even though we might be able to bring these other experts in, there's this concern, this cloud over the case now with Devers. He's already done a number of years of time. Is it worth it to the community and the millions of dollars and you know, I, you know the taxpayers, and, and is it worth it to go through this again? And I think they they took a a political and a you know a, they took a temperature of the climate and just said, let's let's cut our losses at, at, and and cut cut bait on this one. Yeah, and I, I believe actually. Uh, I mean, I I didn't hear about this Alfred, uh, however you pronounce that. Yeah, Al, the Alfred plea. The Alfred plea. I think that Alfred plea was a good thing for everybody. I think it was a wise decision by Dave Rudolph, as it's portrayed, Mm -hmm. for him to advise his client to do that. There was, uh, for all the reasons presented in in the uh, series, and I think the state probably is as well. uh, As it turns out, even if you're empathetic, which many listeners are, I think, uh, to Michael Peterson and his family and his kids. I mean, what's portrayed there is a heart-wrenching yes. um, uh, saga. Everyone, you know, the, the family's lost. I mean, he lost his reputation, his money, his in eight or nine years of his life in prison. So um, I don't think there was uh, anything to be gained personally anyhow yeah. i think it was a good thing for for both defense and prosecution yeah uh, I, th- I think that that's a succinct summary of that all right well I, I think we've we've heard everything we want to about the case and i appreciate your professionalism and how you focus on the evidence and you've talked about you know your conclusions and the basis for those conclusions you disagree where you know you do with deaver and uh henry lee uh but you know, I, I think ultimately, unequivocally, you would say that the what you saw at the scene, the evidence shows that this would not have been from a fall. Yeah, that's. I think that's the the best way of describing the the stains that we see at the scene and on the clothing are not what you see in in just a a fall down the stairs. And you have worked hundreds of cases and world-renowned, well-known cases throughout your career and been involved in very high-profile case assessments. And you've got the experience, the training and education and knowledge base to be able to make those kinds of statements. Well, I'd hope so. And, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to get hooked on the number of cases that I've worked, as you can see that Dwayne Deaver uh, mm-hmm, sure. and others can um, puff up some of those things. But I've, I've worked significant numbers of cases um, and experience uh, on both prosecution and defense. And so I think that's that's significant. Um, and I believe our observations and conclusions uh, um, stand for, for themselves. And so the last question here that all the listeners will want to know, did an owl do it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I was, I was presented to that. Uh, Did you I, consider that while I, looking I, at the evidence? No, I never considered that, and I'm not considering it now. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. You didn't see any feathers in the photographs? You didn't see any uh, talon scratches on the face? or No. No. Okay. All right. So we can, we can eliminate the raptor theory. Yes. <laughs> well, um, I got a couple more questions I want to present to you, uh, and these came in uh, online. So I'll try to mention also the, the username of the people uh, asking the questions. Uh, well, you covered the first one there about the owl. So for, for fairy dust uh, XX, uh, that, that was one of uh, the questions from, uh, from that writer. Uh, a couple questions uh, from Lenine247 and um, Irish Cuban Girl. The blood being dry. Now, I, I guess there's kind of both sides. One, he, you know, he, you know, killed her and then waited a long time before calling nine one one. Or on the defense side, he was asleep by the pool the whole time, and she fell down the stairs, and then everything dried while he was just still sleeping by the pool. I'm not sure if the blood being dry has much to say to with with these two theories. But do you, did you have anything to add in from? your perspective about uh, the blood being dry uh, in the stairwell. Yes. Um, I think it well may be very significant. There's a couple of things to note. Is uh, We've done studies and published uh, drying times, and uh, for one drop of blood, um, simply you know, on a hard surface, can take up to half hour to 45 minutes to dry. Now, some of these stains that were there were smeared, and they'll dry quicker. But the, the first responders that get there, I don't think they take photographs right away, but they, their observations in their reports are that they think things are dry, that well could indicate that there was some time between uh, his calling and actual death. The, you know, the actual autopsy says that she died actually from loss of blood, so she, and that could take some time uh, for her to, to bleed. There was a like, sizable amount of blood, it seemed, down there, so it would take a little time to dry. Uh, it might indicate that there was some time between that. There Also, there was, there was a bloody, and it's mentioned a number of times, I don't know if, how significant it is at all, but there was a bloody shoe print on the bottom of her sweatpants, which... And there's blood on his shoes, the bottom of his shoes. So it looks like his he stepped in blood and then accidentally, or while he moved her, got the towel, stepped on her. But I, I think the questionnaire's question, whoever those people right. are, uh, is a valid thing to consider, that uh, there well could have been some time between. And then, of course, it brings up, of course, you... In the series, you hear this dramatic 911 call. I mean, if there was time in between, how do you evaluate the 911 call? Right. right. And, and, but it really, as but, Eric points out, could go for either theory. Yes. Uh, prosecutions or defense. Yes, absolutely. Well, then let me jump to the, this question here about the shoe print from uh, Squitter Roar. Now, the, the shoe print is found on her back, and she was found laying on her back that's what all the the photos of the scene uh, she's found laying face up 
Um, so for that to be there, and he, I guess he never testified to it. And I didn't really see him describe this in the in the show. Of uh, he would have had to have basically found her on you know face down and then rolled her uh, you know accidentally stepped in the blood and then onto her and then rolled her over onto her back. Did did I did I miss anything or, or does he mention doing any of that uh, in the show um, or or. or I don't know. I, that seems to be that shoe print on her back seems to be a significant thing saying, you know, showing that she was moved uh, by him at, at some point um, uh, in this process, uh, whether or not, you know, you believe either uh, his story or the prosecution story. This partial shoe print is is not on her back. Okay. It's on the lower right hand uh, side cuff way down low on her sweatpants we're looking at a a diagram right now of bart's notes and all the patterns that he observed the blood and staining and pooling and spatter and so forth and yeah clearly you can see in this diagram (laughs) uh that that he's indicated where this is it's right down by the by the ankle um where the sweatpant would be like the calf yeah calf i mean so it's not on her back i mean so you know, I, I don't have a full photograph of her, but it would be her legs could have surely been just stretched out, and he hits it with his shoe. Okay, and and I, I just from online, I, I, I you know do see a picture of of her kind of as she was found by the crime scene people, and and her legs are are you know splayed out. So you're saying that that as he's moving around the body, he, he could have stepped on her sweatpant leg uh, at some point to get that stain there possibly in her in that position where she was found laying face up yes yeah i don't yeah i think yeah i think so and uh i think henry lee even mentions that it wasn't smeared so it looks like it was she was stable when when it when that contact made so i don't know how significant it is uh, except that, that his bloody shoe did come in contact with her pants but it could support either theory yet again. Yeah, I don't think it it points to anything more than that. Right. So Laura Bean three two six asks about the seven scalp lacerations, and thinking it's a little extreme from a fall down the stairs. And you kind of already alluded to this earlier with another question, but it seemed like you were saying she she did fall. Okay, she hits her head, and that causes a laceration. You know, at least one laceration. Maybe, uh, who knows how it how it hits. But then, if she bounces, she doesn't really have the impact to have another laceration like this, and then to get up to seven. Yes, I think you've said it succinctly. <laughs> I mean, if you go, you fall down, even if from above or below. I mean, if you fall and hit your head, you, I mean, you hit it bang and then it comes up a little bit but it doesn't come up enough to go bang 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 seven times to to get those lacerations uh i'll leave that to the medical examiner and she was pretty clear on what her opinion was yeah and and as we're pointing out too and i think in a previous episode some some listeners or watchers viewers were concerned that okay well it never broke her skull it didn't fracture it you know it's just these lacerations um, but as you already pointed out in this, the actual cause of death was exsanguination. She bled to death. 
that was the cause of death. And, I, I, and that just because her skull wasn't fractured, that doesn't necessarily mean all that much. A lot, I think much has been made about that, but that wasn't the cause of death. And it doesn't have to be in these kinds of... You can fall, and it doesn't necessarily have to be from a brain injury or a skull fracture. Right, correct, yeah. Right. Well, that was... uh, And that's one of the questions that Fairy Dust asks again. uh, And it was a really convincing part uh, of the uh, of the show when R- R- Rudolph puts on or asks the question about all these other cases with um, lacerations and none and they all also had uh, either a skull fracture or brain damage. Um, I know this may be getting kind of outside your realm of expertise, but did you have any other thoughts on, and we kind of already talked about it in the previous episode as well, but any other thoughts to add in on that? Right. I, I made the point in another episode that those would have been cases where someone died from blunt force trauma. Therefore, you'd expect to see the skull fractures. What about all the cases where someone died from exsanguination but also had injuries to the head? In other words, it could have been more of a biased sample of cause of death cases. Yes, I mean, I, I don't have anything else to add. I mean, I, it, like you suggested, it's really not my area of expertise. I'll have to believe what Dave Rudolph found and sure. presented. And I think it was a terrific defense uh, presentation to cause some question about uh, her findings. Uh, and then a uh, uh, last thing uh, from from this list of questions from that's crazy uh, asking about the chair rail did uh, did you see any evidence that uh, you know she impacted the chair rail that caused the lacerations or did you did you see any testing done um, on on the chair rail instead of the actual steps that would have you know led you to believe that there was an impact there well, we, I mean, we see the chair rail. There was a lot of blood um, driven up by the, that chair rail. Did not see any indication that there was an impact on that chair rail. What is a chair okay. rail? It was, it was this rail. It's like, it's like at the level of like a handrail. Um, it's so when you back your, you know, your chair in the dining room up, uh, you know, if, if it doesn't hit the wall, it, you know, you're, you're not familiar with the term, that term, Glenn? I will be after this episode. I'll be Googling okay. that. <laughs> that and blowpoke, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's... Really, was she murdered in the Victorian mansion in 1855? <laughs> the Davenport and the Ottoman as well? I don't know. I, I know the term chair rail. I think that's a pretty common thing. It's... Um, yeah, it's like the le- kind of same kind of level of a handrail and a staircase, but it's usually um, found in like a dining room. Okay. Um, so you said that there's no indication of impact with the chair rail, but you do see blood in that area. Yes. Okay. So th- then the chair rail then isn't uh, isn't going to be a cause for any of the lacerations to her head. No, I no. Okay. Well, this has been very interesting. I'm. I'm <laughs> Glenn, we if if possible, we have to do you know when we go through other cases like this, getting on the experts that actually yeah looked at the evidence. Um, it will be a, a just a great situation if we can kind of keep keep doing this, keep finding people that you were involved uh, in the cases like this. They so. have to be retired, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, 
I mean, there's been other, uh, you know, experts that have given like case studies before. I mean, heck, you know, at, when we're at the conference, um, you know, IA conference, we got to talk to Heather Connor about maybe t- doing a, an episode on the Jody Aris case. Yes, the Jody Arias case, um, and uh, you know, other stuff like that. So, anyway, Bart, thank you so much for for joining us. I'm so happy that you were able to uh, to talk about this and and you know, give us your expertise. And, and I'm, I'm confident the listeners will uh, really appreciate this as well. Uh, this has really been you know, eye-opening. And you know, from my perspective, I remember Glenn had mentioned this, this show before, but I, I, I kinda, it kind of just fell away in my mind. And then I just kind of clicked on it on Netflix, started watching. And after the sh- you know, going through all the episodes and all the new uh, episodes that are now released on Netflix... Just just knowing that, I was really on the fence. I didn't really know what to think. And I think that was kind of their point uh, of the show, is to present the evidence to be like that. Uh, but you know, seeing the actual physical evidence that was available in the case and discussing that more in depth, especially with someone who's an expert on uh, bloodstain pattern, uh, patterns, uh, it really becomes a much more clear that this this wasn't just to fall down the stairs yes well yeah the show clearly was emphasizing the defense side of this issue they didn't ask me to come and say anything (laughs) do you think it was a mistake for prosecution to not get involved in the documentary i mean that's it's not uncommon that the state wouldn't want to do something like that while it's ongoing but were they asked yeah because initially, I believe they did uh, talk. Yeah, they were the- initially. You see, a lot of the first episode, a lot of the stuff in the first episode is from the prosecution side. And then they they said no. Yes, I think that's a mistake. If listeners out there have any other kind of follow up questions, um, I'm sure that uh, we could you know funnel them to Glenn and then get them out to you, Bart, and and uh, obviously it'd be more of just kind of email answers that we would read on the show. But if, if you're willing to answer or entertain any more uh, specific questions that people have, is that something that, that, that Glenn could forward on to you? Sure, that would be just fine. I mean, uh, as, long as, it, as long as it doesn't come into the hundreds of questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll funnel them through Glenn and, uh, and let Glenn uh, be the, the gatekeeper there for, for uh, the number and, and, uh, and type of question. Sure, that... Uh, That'd be good. Uh, so Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com would be the way to get in touch with him. Uh, and then uh, mine is Eric at RayForensics.com uh, if any listener has any, uh, you know, any, anything from me. Usually listeners tend to just, you know, uh, send us uh, both an email. Or tweet us at Double Loop Pod as well, please, on Twitter. And uh, please follow us as well. And, and if you've got some comments, we'll take them there as well. Perfect, perfect. And, Bart, I just want to say, again, thank you as a mentor, a personal mentor and friend and colleague. I've, just, I've known you for years. I've, I've always respected, admired, and learned so much from you. And, again, today, learned much from you. So I really appreciate you being able to come on. And I look forward to some additional episodes on some other fantastic cases that you've been involved in. Sure. It's been my pleasure, Glenn. No, thank and you. Eric. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right, well, um, that will wrap up this show. Uh, I do want to get back to mention uh, some of the sponsors that have uh, helped bring this show uh, to all the listeners out there. Because, uh, surprisingly, it's not free to, uh, to post all these uh, episodes online. Um, so, uh, you could definitely help us out by visiting audibletrial.com slash double loop uh, if you want to listen to some audiobooks. Uh, or by going to cawineclub.com and signing up for a membership there to get free wine. Not free wine. To get wine monthly delivered to you. Uh, to, <laughs> I'd be signing uh, to- up pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> Or just order uh, wine, you know, specifically the wine that you want. Um, I was pleasantly surprised with the uh, the wine that I got and how much I enjoyed it uh, when I signed up for the club, even just in that first month. So you can go to cawineclub.com, and when you check out, uh, include the code Double Loop, and you have 15% off. So with that, uh, don't forget to listen to us every week on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. And I also wanted to remind listeners that if you're interested in uh, taking any classes from me, I'm going to be having a lot more time here in the future to be teaching classes. Uh, so please reach out to me again at glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or check out the classes I'm currently teaching uh, at ronsmithandassociates.com. That's ronsmithandassociates.com. You can look at their training courses and you'll find several different courses for fingerprint examiners uh, that are taught by me. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. If you listen uh, through any of those websites, make sure to give us some five-star ratings or whatever app or website you find us at. If you listen to us online, you can also listen to us at rayforensics.com. And uh, if there's any kind of extra information that we may mention in the show, a lot of times I'll put it there uh, that you can't really find by listening through any of the other apps. Uh, But with that, remember the opinions expressed on the show belong to us and not to any agency that we may work for. And uh, with that, I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.